We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Louis Zamperini ran in the 1936 Olympics as a 19-year-old, and he had a very bright future. But then World War II happened, and as an Air Force bombardier, his plane crashed somewhere in the Pacific. He, along with two others, were on a raft for 47 harrowing days. Uh, They were scorched by the sun and shriveling in hunger and under constant thirst. Sharks were circling around the raft for weeks. They were even jumping onto the raft. They had to beat down, beat back the sharks. And Japanese planes were coming by, pouring bullet holes into the raft. And then after surviving a typhoon, 2,000 miles later, their little raft washed up onto the Marshall Islands. And things were just getting started. They became, for two and a half years, prisoners of war. Zamperini, and along with others, was ruthlessly tortured, mistreated by a, a man known as the Bird, who had become the 23rd most wanted war criminal in all of Japan. You see, the, the Pacific POWs, they lost 40% of their body weight. They faced terrible disease, malnutrition, but it was the emotional injuries that were the most lasting. In fact, in a 1987 study, some 47 years after those POWs got their freedom, 60% of the Pacific POWs still suffered significant psychiatric impairment. After returning from the war in 1945, Zamperini was hailed as a hero, but on the inside, he was coming undone. Zamperini, he was haunted by nightmares every night. The bird was there with a belt, whipping him across the face. And he would wake in a rage, screaming, dripping in sweat. One particular night, he woke up from a nightmare, only to find himself shocked as he was on top of his wife, strangling her by the neck, screaming, I am still a man. Zamperini became overtaken by an unremitting desire for revenge and for murder. And he waited to save money in order to return to Japan to find the bird and his other captors in order to kill them. During this time, he fell into alcoholism, drinking every night until he was completely dull. His wife, seeing his desperation, ultimately filed for divorce. Zamperini was lost and he was totally out of control. This Olympian, this American war hero, was becoming completely ruined by unforgiveness. And the truth is that unforgiveness is indeed ruinous. Whether it's sin done by you or evil done to you, unforgiveness ruins the soul. But it's forgiveness that makes all things new. 
So how do we move from unforgiveness into forgiveness? That's the question that Louis Zamperini faced, and it's really the question that we all must face. Jesus' words here in Luke 23, 34, I believe, show the way. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Over the next two weeks, today as well as next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to examine this particular saying in Luke 23, 34, in order to first consider divine forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, and then next week we're going to focus on the latter half of the verse in order to consider interpersonal forgiveness, that is forgiveness that is passed between one human to another. And I would suggest to you that the key to going from unforgiveness to forgiveness goes from, and from divine forgiveness to interpersonal for, forgiveness can be discovered even in this short saying of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus begins by saying, Father, that's important, Father. The movement from unforgiveness to forgiveness starts with understanding the nature of God. The emphasis in the Old Testament was on God as Lord. As Lord, God is revealed as transcendent in the Old Testament, as a holy other, as majestic and as pure. As sovereign Lord, he is also presented as forgiving and loving, but it is chiefly through the lens of understanding him as Lord. And indeed, he is God of the universe. But an overemphasis or a very, an overemphasis on the lordship of God can and has led to a spiritual distortions among other religions and within Christianity. It can lead to God becoming distant in your experience. He's the one who uses you like a master might use a slave. He's this God who's constantly watching you, and you need to prove yourself of value before this stern Lord. Now, Jesus absolutely, in the New Testament, affirms that God is Lord. Don't misunderstand me. And yet, surprisingly, the emphasis is on God as Father. As Father. Now, as Father, we are to relate to God as close, as intimate, as imminent, as deeply personal, as very tender. You see, in the Old Testament, the revelation of God focuses on God as Lord, as the title is the, usually Adonai, not Father. Adonai, the title for Lord uh, with God, occurs over 400 times. He's called Father, either directly or by inference, 14 times in the Old Testament. And what is remarkable is that there is a dramatic shift in the New Testament, and it's led by Jesus' own teaching and example himself. Though the New Testament is much shorter than the Old Testament, God is not called Father 14 times. He's called Father nearly 300 times. That's almost a 2,000% increase. And then in the Gospels themselves, Jesus refers to God as Lord just under 100 times, but he refers to God as Father 210 times. And you can see that even within the frequency of use, it flips in Jesus' use. Something dramatic is going on in the, the teaching and example of Jesus in the New Testament and how we would relate to God in his spiritual classic, knowing God, 
James Packer, he said it this way, quote, you sum up the whole New Testament religion, if you describe it, as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God, unquote. This shift to father does not negate the lordship of God, by no means. But there is a, a swing in emphasis that's unmistakable. The father is not far off. The very spirit of the father is now residing in me by faith as he resides through his Holy Spirit. By grace, through faith, you are a beloved child of God through the, in the new covenant. And rather than cowering before God's holiness, we are actually encouraged in Jesus' teaching and throughout the New Testament to speak directly and with great confidence to God as Abba, Father, in which we go to him as Daddy. He is King of the universe, but to us, to those who have put their faith in him, he's Papa, and we can go to him with incredible childlike confidence. Unfortunately, it's easy to not understand God as Abba. And it's easy to not see yourself as a beloved little child, as the Apostle John stresses in 1 John. When Louis Zamperini was a small child, he uh, was hurrying off to school, and he was on a, some stairs going to school, and he fell. He tripped. He got back up, only to trip once again, and then just a third time, he tripped again, and he, and he finally got up, and he was utterly convinced that God was tripping him. And he carried this image of a tripping God all the way into his own adulthood. In fact, after the war, when he came back, he was retraining for the Olympics, and during one of his training sessions, he blew out his ankle, which ended his Olympic career. And immediately, he went back to the same image, there he is again, tripping me, ruining me. Is that your image of God, this tripping God, this scrutinizing God? We can actually uh, draw very positive pictures of God through our human fathers, and the scriptures, I believe, encourage us to do this. Early on, in, uh, one of my earliest memories was when I was five years old on my birthday, and my uh, father, he took me out. We went to Toys R Us, and I got the toy that I wanted. We then went to Bally High. It was my favorite restaurant. It's an, it was a Chinese restaurant in Linfield. And I got my favorite lunch meal, number 22. I still remember it. <laughs> Bally High doesn't exist, but it does in my memory. Pork fried rice, chicken fingers, and my favorite, teriyaki steak strips. And then that night, my mother had to work, but my dad and I, we made popcorn, and I remember sitting on his bed, and we watched Mel Brooks's movie, The Young Frankenstein. <laughs> now, my father had just become a Christian, 
and I don't think he would approve of watching that movie, especially with a young child at, at, this, at this point in, in his life. And yet the movie was indeed hilarious. It was this little, this is the 1970s, it was this little black and white television. There we were, if you can picture us on the bed. And my, I was laughing my head off, not because I understood anything in the movie, I really didn't, but, but my dad was in stitches laughing and laughing and I was just laughing with him because it was so wonderful to be in his presence and to laugh with him. I experienced how close, how personal, how, how intimate and pleasurable it was to be in the presence of my father. Now, Brother Lawrence, uh, in his well-known 17th century little book called The Practice of the Presence of God, actually teaches a spiritual principle that by holding a positive picture of a human father in the father-child relationship, within your mind, you can use that picture as a way to meditate and to ponder and to converse with God. It can be a wonderful way in which you understand in a very, in your heartfelt way, who you are and who he is. Not all of us, of course, can draw from our fathers in that way, but there may be another father figure who can teach you that, or it could be you as a father living that out and then drawing from that. Or at a very minimum, we have stories within the scriptures of these good fathers. You think of the father within the prodigal son. You can use these images and these stories and enter into them yourselves as you pray and meditate upon who God is. And when you do this, wonderful things can happen. Amazing things. I might spend uh, just a, a few minutes in a day and I've been doing this over the last several weeks where I've been closing my eyes, especially at a, a particular tense moment. And I would close my eyes, relax in my chair, take a few breaths, and I would go back to this picture of being on my parents' bed with my dad. And amazing things begin to happen. I talk to God in this way, in this place, as a little child. And I begin to become uh, confronted with my own thoughts and my own worries about what's going on in, in my life. Lord, Father, did I do something wrong? And now that all my defense mechanisms are gone because of the popcorn and the movie and my dad's presence, the Lord Father, too, he speaks. Well, son, maybe you did. Lord, I'm, Father, I'm having trouble forgiving. And the father, in a whisper, says, that person that you're having trouble forgiving, do you know I love him too? I love him as much as I love you. And one begins to realize within this very intimate way of talking with the father, we begin re revealed of a, a way to live. You can do this in just a few minutes. Each day, I would challenge you even as you go into this week, for five minutes, pause, Close your eyes, take some breaths, find an image, a positive image of a father and enter into that presence and speak to the Lord Heavenly Father who's right there and he's been there all along. He wants to hear and receive from you and these sorts of ways of spiritual practice can work wonderful wonders in our life. So the movement from unforgiveness to forgiveness I think begins by seeing the very nature of God as Father. But it also comes by understanding 
the logic of divine forgiveness. Father, he says, forgive them. What is this forgiveness? What is this forgiveness that the Father provides? And I, we can consider the, the logic of forgiveness in a simple statement that goes like this. The Father's forgiveness is release of an unpayable debt against God, paid by God. Hear that again. The Father's forgiveness is release of an unpayable debt against God, paid by God. And I want to break that down and consider each, each step. Forgiveness is the release of debt. That's important to understand. The term forgiveness is literally an economic term, and it refers to the release of a financial debt, or it can mean the lifting of, a crush, of the crushing weight of a financial debt. And for divine forgiveness, God's release or his lifting of the crushing debt of sin and punishment is the idea of what forgiveness means. So forgiveness, first off, is this release from debt. But it's also, forgiveness is the release of an unpayable debt. It's an unpayable debt. You loan me $10,000, I can't repay. If you forgive the debt, then I'm released from the obligation to having to pay you back the $10,000. In a similar way, the forgiveness of sins is God's release of your obligation to pay him and the guilt and the punishment that comes with our failure to having actually paid. And I think that also then gets into the importance of understanding the idea of sin as it relates to the concept of, of forgiveness. What's a good way of understanding what sin is? Well, sin is really just a failure to pay God is due. It's a failure to pay God is due. Well, what do you owe? The Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism, says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In other words, every breath, every thought, all of our affection, all of our words, all of our deeds, every heartbeat is intended by God to be given over to God. We owe it all. And the truth and the reality is, is that by holding, we'll focus on breath for a moment, by holding, withholding just one breath, do you realize that you have incurred for yourself the inability to ever pay it back to God? Why so? Well, because if every other breath is already due to him, you don't have any extra breaths in the savings account to pay for the one that you held back. There's no breaths there because they're already all due to due him. So by withholding one breath, you've already taken on an unpayable debt. Did you know that if you live to 80 years old, a person will approximately have 673 million breaths? Failure to pay God just one breath is unpayable. But how many of those breaths that are due to God did you not, have you not paid? 10%? Come on. 50%? 90%? How about 99.9%? Well, let's flip it and say, let's, Perhaps you give God 99.9% .9 of all of your prayers. Just 0.1 is what's left out. Not bad, right? 
Well, what's point one of all those breaths? That's 673,000 breaths that you still owe to God. We're in this, we incur this inestimable, unpayable debt by withholding one, but we withhold so much more, not just breaths, but so much about our lives. God knows. God knows what's been withheld, but we have no idea. It's too big of a number to know. So forgiveness is the release of an unpayable debt, but it's an unpayable debt, and this is important, against God. It's an unpayable debt chiefly and primarily against God. Do you remember King David? When he sinned against Uriah, he murdered him, and sinned against Bathsheba by wooing her and committing adultery with her, which is why he murdered Uriah, uh, her husband, and sinned against all of Israel because of his poor leadership, leading to many being, uh, being punished under his corporate leadership. And yet, despite all of that, in reflection upon his own sins, he says in Psalm 51, something that we say often in our own communion services, against you, you only have I sinned. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How can that be? Well, it's because within every false action, with whoever you're dealing with, embedded within it is a failure to obey, to love, and to know God. If you speak evil against another person, you're really speaking evil against God in whose image that person was made. I shared a, a, in a sermon a few years ago about my own destructive use of pornography that was found out to my own misery and others 13 years ago. My wife Tracy was terribly wounded by my adulterous actions. And she said one thing to me that I've never forgotten and it struck me to the heart. She said, Michael, you need to deal with this not to save our marriage but for your own relationship with God. He's the one you've hurt. Michael, you broke your promise of purity and fidelity to him, not me. You owe it to him to figure this out. And he did. He did help. And he can help you too, whether you're dealing with that or something else. You see, at the core of every sin, no matter how small or great, is rejection of God as Lord, as Father, and as Savior. Well, forgiveness is the release of an unpayable debt against God, paid by God. It's paid by God. I think it's important to understand that forgiving debt always costs someone. Forgiveness is never free. Someone has to pay the debt. It's a, it's a law in the economic world, and it's a law in the spiritual world. Consider President Biden's wonderfully named student loan forgiveness program. Who wouldn't want 40 million students who have received student loans to have their loans forgiven? It sounds wonderful, and I'm not telling you whether you should agree with this or not disagree. It's, I, I put that aside, but one important point to realize is that it's not as if President Biden can sign a piece of paper and the debt is gone. What's happening is the debt is being transferred from those students to the American taxpayer. Someone is going to pay the debt. The bill will come due. 
It's a law on finance. And it's a spiritual law. And so Jesus, he says, Father, forgive them. That word forgive, is in, it's important. And it's interesting because Jesus, when he says forgive, it's not a request. Uh, if you understand within the, the, the Greek, the, it's in, in the imperative mood, which means Jesus is speaking a word of command when he says those words. This is God the Son commanding God the Father to forgive the sins of those who have been entrusted to him. Jesus is essentially saying, Father, before in the garden he said, take this cup from me, but nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. And now he's on the cross. And he's saying, Father, now, now pour out your wrath so that their debts can be paid. And he's doing this, and he's saying these things because sin is real. Justice, God's justice, is true. The debt is inestimable. And the grace of God comes at an incredible cost. The cost of the blood of the Son of God. And he says, forgive them. Who is the them in this passage? Who is the them? Some commentators like Calvin, think that Jesus is only referring to those who were crucifying him on that particular day. Jesus has just those people in mind when he speaks this word, Father, forgive them. Others, like Augustine, argue that, no, uh, that's not what's going on here. What's really going on is that God is, when he says them, he's referring to all those who will trust, who will trust in the provision that God has given. And I think there are several reasons to, uh, to affirm Augustine's way of thinking that the them is referring to all those past, present, or future who would put trust in the provision of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the first reason is because forgive is a command. Why would Jesus command the Father to intercede only just for those who are right in front of him? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It makes more sense that the, the emphasis is because it's for all, for all who need uh, his forgiveness. Not only that, uh, but Jesus' words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, are in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53.12. That's why we read it earlier on in, in our service. Isaiah 53.12 says, He bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So you can see when Jesus is, is saying this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he is making intercession for the transgressors. Right there, it's, he's fulfilling the promise. And if you look at Isaiah 53, it's very clear. It's not just for those few who are crucifying Christ. It's referring to all. He's bearing the sin for many, not just for the few. And not only that, but Jesus' words and God's response to Jesus' intercession for us is absolutely unprecedented. In fact, no one in all of antiquity, as far as I know, who is dying says anything even remotely like what Jesus says here on the cross, Father, forgive them. No one says anything like that. In the Old Testament, there's, as far as I can tell, only one person who even comes remotely close to saying something like it, and it's Moses in Exodus 32, 32. And there, in Exodus 32, 32, Moses commands, it's in the imperative again, it commands God to blot him out of the book of life, for, 
life for the sake of Israel's sins. And what's interesting in Exodus 32 is that if, well, this is my paraphrase in the verses 33 and 34, God's answer to Moses is basically no. No, I can't do that. It's a very nice gesture, Moses, but your life isn't worth the exchange for the sins of others. Everyone has to bear the consequences for their own sins. But that's not what happens here in this gospel in Jesus' words. Father, forgive them. The Father says, yes, yes, I will respond to your prayer, my son. And all of the sins, all of our sins, have been poured out upon the Son of God. He makes this amazing intercession. And I would suggest to you that it's not just them, it's for all of us through all of history and something incredibly historical is taking place within the history of redemption. When God said, let there be light, a dark universe was all of a sudden illuminated. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, history shifts. It is shifting from unforgiveness to forgiveness. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, the them includes you and me. Anyone and all who will put their faith in the acceptable payment of God to God, Jesus Christ. The them, when in the divine mind of Jesus Christ as God, he had my name embedded in the them. He knew, oh yeah, that Michael, yes, all of his sins. I accept everyone, everyone. And he says the same thing for you. Father, forgive Michael John, for he knows not what he does. In fact, you can say that for yourself. In fact, let's say that together. You insert your name, your first name, uh, in this saying. Let's say it together, nice and loudly, with enthusiasm. <laughs> Father, forgive Michael, for he knows not what he does. The state of unforgiveness ruins the soul. But the move from unforgiveness to forgiveness comes by understanding the nature of God as Father. When you come into the intimate Father, the presence of the Father, your heart melts and forgiveness begins to bubble up. And it also comes by the understanding, the logic of divine forgiveness, which is this release of an unpayable debt against God paid by God. Louis, Louis Zamperini, for four years, uh, was being ruined by his own unforgiveness. Unforgiveness towards others and living in a state of unforgiveness before God. As his life was, unra his life was unraveling, one day Cynthia, his wife, who was in the process of divorcing him, came home and, he's, and she said, Louis, I've decided I'm not going to divorce, divorce you. Terrific, he said. And then she said, I became a Christian today. What? What are you thinking? Then Cynthia began to beg Louis to go uh, with her that, the next night uh, to hear a man uh, preaching good news. It was 1949, and they lived around Los Angeles. And so Louis accepted the invitation, and he went with uh, his wife and they heard a man named Dr. Graham who preached a word. 
At the end, he heard Graham say every head bowed and every eye closed, and as soon as he heard that, he knew something fishy was going on, so he got up and he left, uh, he, went, he and his wife. He went back home in a rage. That night, that night he had another nightmare. Zamperini lay there on the bed with the bird whipping him with the belt, but this time the face of the bird was not the bird, but it was Satan himself. The next morning he woke up and after lots of arguing with Cynthia, she begged him to come back and he finally agreed. But he said, as soon as he says every head bowed and every eye closed, we're out of there. That was the agreement. Well, he heard Dr. Graham talk about the love of the Father, the impossible debts of our sins. He heard it all and then Graham did the every head bowed, every eye closed and he sprung up. It was a tent of 6,000 people, a circus tent grabbed his wife's hands and let's go. As they went through, Graham was known to have said at that time, not now, not as, now is not the time to leave. You could have left during the sermon, stay and listen. Zamperini was just bolting for the door. And as he got to the end of the aisle and was gonna turn away from the stage, all of a sudden he had another flashback. It was a flashback of a memory that he had beaten down and had completely forgotten. And all of a sudden, for the first time since coming back to America, it bubbled back up. There he was with his two friends from, from the, uh, the, the airplane that had come down. These three shriveled men. One of them was going to die on the raft that they would entomb in the sea. The sh sharks were circling them. They were dying of thirst. And Zamperini remembered this moment of an unkept promise in which he said on those parched, dry lips, if you will save me, I will serve you forever. And as he remembered those words for the first time, he all of a sudden at the end of the aisle found himself walking towards the front, responding to the invitation. And indeed, that very night, he gave himself over and received Jesus Christ as his Savior in the forgiveness of sins. And something remarkable happened to Zamperini. He went home and he took out all the alcohol and he poured it down the sink. He threw away the girly magazines. The next morning he woke up feeling cleansed. And for the first time in five years, he had not had a nightmare about the bird. And he says, he lived at 97 years old, he said he never had another, another nightmare again. The next year, 1950, he was to return to Japan, but not to forget, not to murder for revenge, but instead to, he went to Sagamo prison and he forgave his captors who were there uh, under guard. He forgave them for what they had done to them and he called them to understand the forgiveness of sins. And he said over 50% of those men in that prison came to Christ that day that he preached. And he did run in the Olympics again, believe it or not. I believe it was in the 1998 Olympic Games, the Winter Olympic Games in Japan. The Japanese crowds had been gathered on the street cheering this 81-year-old man as he carried the Olympic torch through Noatsu, the very village where he had been a POW. He also learned when he went back to Japan on that trip that the bird uh, Mr. Watanobe was still alive. And he wrote a letter 
of forgiveness. And that letter was handed to Watanabe, and we don't know how he responded. But I suppose it doesn't matter. What is important is how do you respond? Do you accept the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ? This debt paid by God for out of the love from the Father for each one of you. This debt that only Jesus could pay. And only Jesus in his powerful prayer prayed for each one of you where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even so, Holy Spirit, we pray for the forgiveness of sins. I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet given their life over to you, receiving you, knowing that you give the power to become the children of the Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation and that all of us would be rejoicing in this wonderful gift of your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.